Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing very well. Jasmine, I heard that you made Emerge. You're in Emerge now, so congratulations to you. That's very big and uh, happy news for us. Thank you very much. Yeah, we've had a ton of Emerge alumni our alumna uh, on the show before, and we usually mention that at the top when we're doing their introduction. So I think now whenever I do my introduction, when you finish the program, I'll be like, joining me <laughs> as always is Emerge alumna Jasmine Smith. We'll see if we actually do that. Probably not. But congratulations anyway. That's very yeah. good news. Um, looking forward to whatever office you decide to run for in the future. But today we have lots of stuff to talk about. The, the legislative session is underway. Things are happening. We have budget shenanigans that have been going on. We're going to start by talking about that. There was a significant bill that passed today regarding the t- relief for the big tornadoes that happened in Western Kentucky. So Jasmine's going to talk about that. We're going to follow up on the redistricting discussion we had last week that laid out a lot of the bills. Those bills have now passed with some slight changes. We're going to go through some of those. And we're just going to cover the a catch-all of the other bills that have passed the legislature. And we have a COVID update at the end. So given that we have all of that to talk about, let's go ahead and dive in. Okay, Jasmine, we've been doing this show since late 2016. So we had talked about the budget session in 2018 and 2020 and you know in 2021 when we actually had to pass a budget so this is the first the third actual long session which with a budget that we've actually discussed and really the fourth budget we've talked about and and every time when we've talked about the budget and really for as long as anyone else can remember the process has been basically the same the governor delivers a budget address outlining their budget priorities and then the legislature works with that executive budget and crafts the state's budget so that's the way it's always kind of worked in the past where the governor starts and the legislature follows up. And that used to be the way that it worked on every level of government. The The president still issues an executive budget. The legislature, the Congress in, in Washington doesn't even really pass a budget. They just pass basically, uh, you know, continuing resolutions or some sort of like budget bill for the individual cabinets. It's the budget process on the federal level is a big mess and way stupider. But in the states, that's basically the way it's always gone. But this year... Republicans jumped the gun three days prior to the governor's budget address. You know, they went ahead and unveiled their budget. This is really unprecedented. This is something that's never happened before. And also, budget chairman Jason Petrie said specifically to Joe Sanka, journalist for the Courier Journal, a step that they would not take. And and then they did. So he basically, you know, according to Joe Sanka and according to Mary Lou Marzian, who uh, overheard the conversation, apparently uh, lied directly to their faces and said they weren't going to do this. And then they did. The, the budget process is actually outlined in statute. The, the language of the statute does say that the governor's role is to go first in submitting a budget. So there is an argument to be made that this year's budget is illegal, whatever comes out of it. And, and if it's something that's really egregious, um, that is potentially something that might get challenged in court because of the order in which this happened. Um, the move is very in line, though, with a lot of moves you know, that we saw last year to minimize or strip the governor's power. Jasmine, do you think that that's right? I mean, is this kind of the same thing as what they did with COVID and the governor last year? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it. I don't know if this is an attempt to strip. It definitely seems like an attempt to minimize. Yeah. Yeah, that seems that seems more fair. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's one of those two things, either stripping or minimizing. So anyways, the, the Republican legislature did give their budget first um, and, and the governor did 
eventually give his budget address three days later as scheduled. Um, the priorities of the GOP's budget and the governor's budget, I would say they're not substantially di- different. There's a lot of the same sort of priorities that they outlined and highlighted when when both the GOP in the House and the governor like hi- were talking about their individual budgets. But the funding levels in both of the budgets are significantly different. So I'm going to go through a few of those now. So, so both budgets, the GOP House majority and and the governor, they both extend school for small children. The GOP house budget covers the entire cost of kindergarten, which that's new. That's not something that's been done before. But Governor Bashir's budget does that and also pays for universal pre-K for all four-year-old children in the state of Kentucky. That's a huge expenditure and something that, you know, anybody that listens to to me or in in just about any place knows that something that I'm really passionate about and something that I think is really important. So I'm really happy that the governor put this in his budget. You know, I I think that that's a huge step. Um, And and it's great to have Governor Bashir as an ally in the the fight for universal pre-K for for four-year-olds. I wish it was three and four, but I understand there's a lot of priorities. Four-year-olds is definitely a good start. The SEEK per-pupil funding. That is another huge priority, is in every budget, but the GOP budget um, outlines a $4,100 in year one and a $4,200 seek in year two. And that, that's that's a, that's an increase over what's there now. So that is that is a step up. But the governor's budget is $4,300 and $4,500. So a substantial increase over uh, the, the GOP's budget. You know, that's $300 more per student, which, you know, really, really adds up once you get to a certain level of, of students. I mean, there's millions and millions of dollars more for schools in the governor's budget versus uh, versus the GOP's house budget. The public transportation budget, which is, you know, that, that probably means something to our folks listening in urban areas, but that mostly means school buses uh, to, to most people. Um, the House GOP outlines $60 million for public transportation. The governor's budget is $175 million, so almost three times as much. The governor's budget includes a 5% raise for teachers. The GOP's budget encourages a raise. So it doesn't actually outline one, but just encourages school districts to use extra money that they've received to, to uh, pass that along to teachers. The governor's budget has $57.5 million in funding for higher education, which is $7 million more than the House GOP. And, and then, you know, this is just a few. You can go over and read. There's hundreds of millions of dollars of additional spending on other education priorities and other priorities up and down the budget in the governor's budget when compared to the House GOP, which isn't surprising. The uh, Republican Party nationally and here in Kentucky is all about small government. They're all about, about cutting spending. And even when we are in this situation where we have a lot more money than we need, uh, that seems to still be their priority. The governor's budget has no chance to become law. That, that's just kind of how, how it goes. But, but I really do think that the governor's budget shows what is possible. We've gone through this before, but the, the state has a massive rainy day account due to increases in tax receipts and the stimulus. We have way more money right now than we contemplated having at this time a year ago. And, you know, there's no restrictions on that money. We can spend that money on whatever we want to. But the thing is that we we aren't going to. <laughs> uh, we, we can and should spend it, and we're not going to. Uh, this is a quote from Speaker David Osborne. Quote, we are in a strong financial position, but our economy is still in a precarious position. I know there are those calling for us to spend federal dollars as fast as we receive them, but you can't spend the same dollar twice. 
we have to get it right the first time, unquote. Now, the thing about that, David Osborne, is you have to get it right the first time. Yes, that means you have have to have a first time. You have to actually spend the money, and it doesn't seem like that they are in any hurry to do that. You know, they received this money almost a year ago, so to be like, well, we got to get it right. Like, how long do you need to get it right? How long do you need to figure out what you're going to do with it before you do it? Uh, and that's that's just really unfortunate, but it's the position that we're in. You know, Kentuckians should realize that the government is actively choosing not to provide the needed support that we need in the budget. This budget's going to be finalized with funding levels much, much lower for things like school, things like buses, things like teacher pay, things like pre-K, and, you know, things like school buses. Um, The funding levels are going to be just much lower than they could be and really that they need to be. We have the money to spend to, to, to solve all of these problems. Uh, but we're just not going to do it. We could, but we're not going to because of the legislature that we elect. Uh, that's the situation we find ourselves in, and, and that's that's basically what I have to say about the budget as it is. So, Jasmine, what do you, what do you think about, about these shenanigans, both the shenanigans that happened with the, the Republicans coming out with the budget first and also just the difference between the budget for the governor and, and the House GOP? I wish that we could all just get along. <laughs> 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 like, I wish that... Jason Petrie wouldn't have said, we're not going to do this. And then they just do it anyways. I Like there's been this power struggle this whole time that we knew was likely to happen when we had a super majority Republican legislature and a Democratic governor. But I just had a little bit of hope that it could have been better than what it has been, especially at the beginning of COVID. I thought like maybe we'll all come together and, and it, it's just been worse than I thought. So that's really frustrating. And it'll be even more frustrating if there has to be litigation because they didn't follow the statute. You know what I mean? So, you know, it, it's just more of the same um, from the legislature, I guess. And then as far as like the what you were talking about, about showing like what is possible and that we, we have this money to spend and the GOP doesn't want to do it. Something that I've been reading a little bit about from KSEP, the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, is about our like state worker crisis. And state wages are stagnant, and state workers are like leaving in droves. And, and I don't know, there's so many things that we could do something about um, with this money. And Republicans want to talk about people getting back to work and people don't want to work anymore, but, but they're not really willing to do anything about it. The state worker crisis is a whole different thing. And that is something we could directly address in the budget. I mean, it is, it it is pretty, I mean, so, I mean, I have a degree in public policy and when I finished grad school, that was kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to work for the state doing work um, in public policy. And, And even then, which was, you know, more than a decade ago at this point, which is crazy to think about. But like even back then, it was really bad. The, the The wage differential between going into the private sector versus going to work for the public sector was pretty substantial. It's only gotten significantly worse. It's crazy to think about mm-hmm. the money that, you know, somebody with the skills that I got in grad school, um, how much money you can get when you go to work for the state versus when you go to work in the private sector. And, and it, it is something that's something we could fix. We would have a higher level of service and a higher level of professionalism and people with different, better skills um, filling these positions that that we need that currently don't have anybody in them. 
and and that is that's just another thing. You know, at the end of the day, the the Republican Party I don't think is all that interested in having a well functioning and and well run state government. I think you know it, it's part of their priorities to reduce the scope, size, and really functionality of of the government. Um, that's been kind of a stated policy platform for like 50 years at this point. Um, and, and this is kind of, I mean, this is the fruits of that. We're just spending less money for no reason. Even during the Bevin administration, you know, we were looking at tax receipts that were going down. We were saying, you know, we, we, that was the, the excuse they had. It wasn't a good excuse. And at the time we thought, you know, what can we do to increase revenues to, to really provide the things that we need? That was, a, I mean, we, we had for years, like Jasmine, what year was it? 2018 when we asked everybody that came on about the revenue increase bill you remember that mm-hmm. yeah and and we talked specifically about like how we're going to get more revenue we have tons of revenue right now we have so we're swimming in money and the thing is we will not spend it the republicans still despite the fact that we have it won't spend it and to me that just goes to show you that this was never really about being responsible with money or being having a responsible budget it's really just about the size of government and the scope of government and and their their view that the government just shouldn't serve people it's not in their interest it's not in their political ideology to have a government that functions well i mean that that seems a little harsh and maybe it is but i think it's borne out in in the budget which you know i it does increase funding for a lot of things they're increasing the seek funding they are increasing public transportation they are increasing these things somewhat but it's nowhere near where it needs to be and nowhere near where it could be given the amount of money that we have. And that's just really disappointing. But there you go. That's the budget. Jasmine, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, something that does have a little bit of unity, something that does have a little bit of bipartisanship behind it, the tornado relief bills, which I believe passed today. All right. So we've got two different um, tornado relief related things to talk about. One of them is House Bill slash Senate Bill 5. They're identical bills. So House Bill 5 is sponsored by Richard Heath, who's from Graves, and he has Graves and part of McCracken County. Um, and then the Senate version, Senate Bill 5 is carried by Jason Howell. He was, um, his first session was the 2021 session. He represents Callaway, Fulton, Graves, Hickman, Trigg, and Lyon County. So, and those um, are all very far western Kentucky counties. If you didn't know that, mm-hmm. the you know the areas that were affected by the tornadoes last month, um, the bill would appropriate two hundred million dollars in aid to those areas in western Kentucky that were affected by the tornadoes in December. It appropriates um, forty five million dollars immediately, though. $30 million of that will go to the Kentucky Department of Education for um, school repairs, after school programs, counseling, and things like transportation costs for displaced students. And then the other $15 million will go towards housing. Um, Bashir did have some other requests that didn't make it into the bill. He also requested immediate like utility and sewer assistance. Um those weren't made part of the bill. And then he also wanted to extend the 100% federal assistance for another 90 days. The state does get another 30 consecutive days of its choice to use 100% federal funding, though. They haven't chosen which 30 days to use. Um, but those are two things that Bashir wanted to be part of the legislation that were not made part of it. Um, I'm not really sure why utility assistance certainly seems like it could be an immediate need though. 
Oh, absolutely. Especially given the fact that, you know, we, the, the prices of energy are going to be really funky, probably, uh, because yeah. of the, the un, un, you know, this is, the services being down and, and being spotty for, for such a long period of time. Mm-hmm. So this fund will be called the SAFE Fund. It stands for State Aid Funding for Emergencies. And um, the entities that will be eligible for the funding are local governments, nonprofits, utility service providers, state agencies, and school districts. So um, the House bill version passed first. It passed the House uh, unanimously 90 to 0. And then the Senate bill version um, passed the Senate Appropriations and Revenue Committee unanimously. And then the full Senate heard the bill today and then substituted it for the House bill version so that they could waive the second and third readings to get it passed quickly. And it passed 32 to zero and it is now headed to the governor. Um, So that was passed very swiftly so that they could get aid to those counties immediately. And then the other one um, is just a simple um, House Joint Resolution 29. It would extend the state of emergency um, for the tornadoes to April 15th. And that one passed the House Appropriations and Revenue Committee unanimously and then passed the full House 88 to zero um, earlier this week. Yeah, so a, a little bit of unity there for for those tornado bills, $200 million going to aid uh, the folks in Western Kentucky that are impacted by the tornadoes. That's that's a huge amount of money to be added to the amount of money that the federal government is already spending there. That's that's good news. I also heard that the First Lady, I think, is going to be in Bowling Green next, or maybe in a couple of days. So I continued mm-hmm. support from the federal government and the Biden administration uh, to Western Kentucky. So So that's good. All right, let's move on and talk about redistricting a little. So we, we did say that we were going to talk about this um, in uh, in a future, or, you know, as as we moved along. I think where we left it last week were, was that the bills were making their way through the, the process but had not yet been completed. They'd been unveiled. I think I actually talked about the Senate and congressional maps like the day that we got them. So... You know, that hopefully, hopefully, uh, you know, that made a little bit of sense. Uh, right. They have all passed the legislature now, both all of the, the Senate congressional Supreme Court maps and the House uh, maps have all passed the legislature and are currently sitting on the governor's desk. Um, the, the Senate congressional the Supreme Court pa- uh, plans passed without any changes. So the exact exactly the way that we talked about them really last week are, are the way that they passed. A few precincts were uh, were modified in the House map. So um, I think that the 88th district in the House, which is in Fayette County, mostly <laughs> it includes some of Scott County now. Um, I think that there are a few precincts that were moved around in that district. And then also there were a couple of uh, uh, precincts moved around in Kenton County. Um, I think that that is those were changes request uh, requested by the Democratic caucus um, for, for Sherilyn Stevenson and Buddy Wheatley, their districts. Um, I think making them a little bit more cohesive and like they were in, in the previous map, but definitely still uh, those are still two of the strangest looking um, districts on on the map and two that cha- changed the most over over the, the past map. So in terms of voting in the House, all Democrats voted against the Senate and congressional redistricting map. So they were unified in opposition to it. Um, but the House Democratic Caucus was a little bit more split on the Supreme Court where there were just 11 nays out of, you know, the 25 House members. And there were actually two yays on their own House map. 
I think those two that voted yes on the House map were Sherilyn Stevenson, who did get a couple modifications to her district that she would be running in, and, and then also Ashley Tackett Lafferty, who is running out in Eastern Kentucky, and her district actually is is pretty decent um, for for what she would want, given the fact that you know Eastern Kentucky is almost entirely a Republican area at this point. Republicans in the House had two defections on the House map and the Supreme Court map three defections on the Senate map, and then six defections on the congressional map, which is, of course, incredibly strange looking because it it sweeps all the way through western Kentucky, down through southern Kentucky, and all the way up to Franklin County. So that that is something that six Republicans said was too weird and that they did not want to go for. So in the Senate, three Republicans and one Democrat voted against the congressional map. Uh, The Democrat who voted against the congressional map was Reggie Thomas. Two Democrats and three Republicans voted against the Senate map. Um, So that was just Morgan McGarvey and Reggie Thomas that voted against the Senate map. And then um, all eight Democrats and three Republicans voted against the House map. And one Democrat, along with three Republicans, voted against the Supreme Court map. So so one of the things you saw was that uh, the the Democratic caucus mostly voted strongly against their uh, the other chamber. So the Senate Democrats voted against the House map and the House Democrats voted against the Senate map. And there was a little bit more crossover um, when it came to their own chamber. So anyways, not like any of this matters. They all passed pretty overwhelmingly because Republicans control the entire legislature. So just, just some interesting stuff. And if you want to see more details about, um, who voted, uh, which way for, um, these, these bills, these, uh, redistricting maps, you know, my website, kypoliticaldata.com has all of that laid out for you. So Kentucky is one of the last states to actually complete the redistricting process. Uh, you know, most other states, have legislatures that meet uh, more frequently, or they call it a special session to deal with some of these things. Um, Kentucky, though, is you know one of the only states that is doing it in 2022. But uh, even though the fact that we're going very, very late in the process is true, this entire process seems very rushed. So, you know, Republicans released less data than any time previously regarding the, the new maps. You know, shapefile technology has really advanced a lot in the past 10 years. But when we drew new maps in 2012 and in 2014, we had those shapefiles to look at before the votes were actually taken. We did not have that this time. Um, even now, which is several days after the passage of the bills, we have nothing official in terms of actual data or shape files regarding the actual districts. We just had kind of have a PDF printout of what they look like without a map underneath of it. And then, of course, there was zero public input. So despite the fact that, you know, these maps have likely been drawn for several months at this point, um, we have basically been in the dark until one week ago, had the maps revealed to us. All people who were not privy to the maps ahead of time, which is everybody but basically the Republicans that drew them up, um, were freaking out and trying to figure out everything we could about them, and now they've passed. So so that's just kind of how, how it is. It's it's really unfortunate. It is, it's really a miscarriage of of government, but it is the way that that we we've we've gone about doing it. Um, you know, Jasmine, you mentioned the, the state worker crisis. And, and, you know, I talked a little bit about like the, the shapefile technology and the what we had done in 2012 and 2014. I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's also part of it. We don't have anybody working in the state government or working for the legislature who can actually make a shapefile. Uh, that, that could be the case. I'm not sure. Um, so, you know, that's, that's where we're at with this. So in the aftermath of the bills package, 
passage, the League of Women Voters identified that zero of the voting districts in the House had majority-minority status. And that's with respect to voting age population. So, you know, if you take into account the children um, in the district, three um, of of the districts had minority-majority status. Um, majority minority status, but but that's not how you're supposed to count it. You're supposed to count it with voting age population because that's what actually makes an impact in terms of your, rep- of your representation. So Josh Douglas, who's the UK law professor who talks about voting rights quite a bit, he claimed that this made the maps illegal. So, you know, I've read a lot about this since he said that, um, and, and I think the actual legal theories behind this relate to the Voting Rights Act, and there are still some open questions about how that law applies to Kentucky. I don't think it's ever really been tested as to whether or not the that Kentucky needs to have all of these districts. It's just something that we've just drawn majority-minority districts because that's what the Voting Rights Act says we need to do, um, and, and we've just kind of assumed that's the case. But it's never actually been tested in court regarding Kentucky. I think it's kind of the, the where we're at with this. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's illegal based on the traditions and the way that we have drawn the maps since the Voting Rights Act passed. But yeah, uh, if it went to court, I think it's a little bit of an open question. It's certain that legal challenges to these maps are going to take place. The, the House Caucus has retained counsel about it, and, and I do know that several independent groups are doing analyses right now regarding the makeup of the different districts inside of the House map. So we will see some kind of challenge, so I don't know what it will be. The governor, too, has, has yet to sign or veto these bills. I, you know, we only went over the actual redistricting bills, but there was also a bill extending the filing deadline, and there was also a bill um, about challenges to, uh, to redistricting. So I, I think the governor probably will have a mixture of signing and vetoing these bills. I, I think it's highly likely he's going to veto at least the congressional map. I think he probably will veto the House and Senate maps as well. But I think he will probably sign the Supreme Court map, he'll probably extend the filing deadline and the constitutional challenges, I think he'll probably sign as well. But we'll see. We'll see what actually happens um, once uh, he he takes action here. So um, that is all for redistricting. Um, any Anything about that? We talked a little bit about it, Jasmine. I know you, you gave some opinions. We talked a little bit about it. But anything about what's gone on this week or the passage of the bills or what the governor might do? Um, I don't really have anything to add. And I think you're right that it's probably an open question about how the Voting Rights Act applies um, to Kentucky. I'm certain there will be a challenge and we'll see what happens. How the law applies is, you know, how judges say it applies. And we have pretty conservative judges. So, (laughs) yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I I mean, that also kind of guides the legal strategy for these challenges. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they bring up the Voting Rights Act or if they try to stick to some other theory. You know, I, I have my opinions and thoughts about what they might do. Um, I don't know. We won't know until that actually happens. So, um, all right, Jasmine, what else happened in the legislature over the past week? All right. So I have a, f- a few other bills that I wanted to make sure that we talked about um, or give updates on. The first one is Senate Bill 1, which we talked about in depth last week. That was the SBDM council bill that makes changes to teacher hirings and and things like that. It it shifts power from these site-based decision-making councils um, to decide curriculum and hiring decisions and things like that. It shifts those to the superintendent. That bill passed the Senate 25 to 9. 
Senators Embry, Storm, and Smith were the three Republicans that voted with Democrats against that bill, and it's now been received in the House. Um, so that's an update on a bill that we talked about last week. And then another education bill that we talked about last week was Senate Bill 25. That passed the Senate 31 to 2. That was the bill that adds 10 more remote learning days. Um, there were some Democratic amendments to increase the number of remote learning days and add some more flexibility to it. Um, of course, those amendments all failed, um, but it does create 10 more remote learning days and it it's a change from the special session, which were like 10 remote days per district. And this one allows each school to have an additional 10 days. So that has passed the Senate um, and will now go on to the house. A bill that we haven't really talked about yet since the session started this one's Senate bill 48. It was heard in the Senate appropriations and revenue committee. And this bill would recover the $15 million dollars, um, from Brady Industries, a.k.a. Unity Aluminum, you got it. a.k.a. Commonwealth Seed Capital. <laughs> I, w- I wondered if you were going to um, get but, it right. You got it. You nailed it. Yeah. Uh, what, we, what we've known as Brady Industries over the last several years, though. Um, so Senate President Stivers today said that there were things he couldn't say um, because of an NDA, but that there are is good opportunity with things happening at the site right now. Um, but th- this bill was a prudent way forward. And so it would require the funds to be recouped by the state by the end of 2022. If the funds are not recovered by the end of the year, the state must then proceed with litigation to recover the funds. And that bill passed out of committee unanimously. And one thing that's that's worth mentioning about that bill passing unanimously out of the committee is I believe Robin Webb, who is both, a, a, you know, a Democrat and, a, a, you know, from this area specifically, um, voted for it, um, which. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of makes me think that the, the group that Unity Aluminum uh, is a little bit sick and tired of having to deal with the, the public scrutiny of getting this 15 million dollars of whatever it was, this several hundred million dollar project. Um, and, and so much public scrutiny has come because of that small investment that the state made. Definitely not worth the headache for them at this point. So I think they're just going to give it back. Makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Probably should have been done long ago. Yeah. Another bill I wanted to mention um, is House Bill 256. This bill would increase criminal penalties for the unauthorized practice of law. Um, It passed the House Judiciary Committee 14 to 2. Um, I bring this up because of a Courier-Journal article um, about a lawyer in northern Kentucky that this bill may have something to do with. Um, There's someone named Eric Dieters who has been suspended from practicing law for eight years, but is working for Dieters law in a building that he owns and has been accused of continuing to practice. And this firm filed several like um, vaccine mandate type lawsuits and and things like that. And so um, I wonder if this bill has anything to do um, with that. It seems likely. It, uh, yeah, that's an interesting story. I hadn't heard that one. So this guy basically was suspended for being like we're breaking the rules, and he just basically is continuing to practice law in in the face of 
Yeah, so that <laughs> increasing the penalties to deal with this guy, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it, it seems like that might be what's happening here. Um he I think he's like he says he's like he's not violating the rule that he's working as a paralegal, um but he he also has been very critical of the Kentucky Bar Association and and their decision to suspend him and and things like that. So that Courier Journal article is linked if you want to check that out. Yeah, I'm reading it right the now. Last, this guy looks like a real winner. <laughs> the last one is House Bill 44, which is a mental health day bill. Um, this is a bill that would allow for excused absences for mental health reasons for students. And this bill, it's really cool. It's been completely really student-led, um, and it has bipartisan support. Its chief sponsor is, of course, the Republican, um, Bobby McCool, Lisa Wilner, and Tina Bojanowski, who have both been on our show before, um, who are both big advocates of mental health. And Tina, Bojana Tina Bojanowski is an educator who is also a big mental health advocate, so they have spoken out about, about this bill as well. And that passed the House Education Committee unanimously. So I think that that is really good news. And hopefully that's something that could pass with bipartisan support this session. Let's hope so. You know, the some of these bills that make it out of committee, even unanimously, it's kind of up to the floor leaders and the, and the Republican leadership as a whole to, to kind of pass them. So we'll see if it's one of the ones that make it. Um, I, I certainly hope so. You know, I've, I've read a lot about this bill and, of course, heard, uh, you know, Dr. Wilner and Dr. Bojanowski talk about it uh, quite a bit. So so that's, uh, you know, something that we we desperately need. So I, I hope it passes. Yeah. And then lastly, I just wanted to note a couple things um, that will be on the horizon probably for the next couple weeks. Um, one of those is the NIL bill, the name image likeness bill. That was just filed yesterday. It's Senate Bill 6. It's filed. It's sponsored by Max Wise and co-sponsored by Morgan McGarvey. That's the bill that um, will follow up with the governor's executive order, which allowed for name image likeness deals for college athletes. And so we'll talk about that one more in depth soon because I, I think that that one will probably pass this year. And then um, I believe tomorrow um, a new school choice bill a new school choice bill will be unveiled. So we'll probably be talking about that one in the future as well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. It's school choice. And, and that kind of movement is something that Republicans have, have really failed to get right the entire time they've been in control, which is going on like five years now, more than that. 2017. No. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. However long that's been, <laughs> whatever that is, I think it's like a <laughs> fifth or sixth session that they've been in control of everything. And I think they've tried to do school choice in every single one and have failed. So, you know, eventually they're probably going to get it right. Uh, and we'll see if this is the actual time that they get it. So, yep, that's, uh, that's where we're at with that. Uh, one other thing that's probably worth mentioning about the session is that it, they're going to actually go on pause for a little bit. I don't know exactly the days, but I think Friday is their last day for a while. I know they're, they're taking off Friday, and then they'll have Monday off for Martin Luther King Day. So they'll have at least a four-day weekend. Yeah. That, I, there, there were a lot of people on in the legislature with COVID uh, this week mm -hmm. because apparently nobody was wearing a mask. And uh, I don't know about their vaccination status, but, you know, again, these are the people that we elect to lead us. Uh, there you go. 
Um, last thing we want to talk about is COVID. <laughs> I guess that was my transition. Everybody in the legislature has COVID. And yes, so does a lot of other folks in Kentucky. Um, we are definitely in the midst of the Omicron spike, which has sent case numbers soaring. Hospital and ice, hospitalizations and ICU numbers still lag, um, but, are, but are certainly increasing. Jasmine, this entire map is, is as red as can be, with urban counties just showing by far the highest case numbers. Jefferson and Fayette counties are above 260 cases per 100,000 population, and you turn red at 25 cases per 100,000. Campbell, Boone, and Shelby counties are also above uh, 200, and, and you know those are, of course, other sort of urban counties. Uh, Campbell and Boone up in northern Kentucky uh, next to Cincinnati. Shelby County right next door to, to Louisville. Warren County, uh, you know, Bowling Green, the, the third biggest city in, in Kentucky, is at 198 cases per 100,000 population. Several other counties ringing Lexington and Louisville are also nearing 200 cases per 100,000. So it seems like the bigger the county the higher the case rate. It does seem that Omicron attacks denser populations first. When you actually look at Louisville's numbers, there were 16,000 cases in Louisville last week. That's four times the highest week ever before Omicron. Nearly 10% of Louisville's total cases since the pandemic began occurred last week, which that is unbelievable. Lexington saw much of the same 6,700 cases, 240% higher than the highest week ever prior to last week. Hospitalizations are nearing 2,000 people per day. That's still much lower than the peak during Delta, which was about 2,600. So, you know, we're about a, we're a little bit more than two-thirds of the way there. And our ICU utilization is actually still below the peak during the outbreak last winter. These metrics are pretty consistent with evidence that Omicron is a little bit less severe than other variants, but both metrics are still rising, just like cases, so we could see a spot where we do emerge into that danger zone where our capacity is very low, and going to things like the emergency department or going to the hospital for anything else, spider bites, whatever, um, could become a problem. Vaccinations are going up slightly. We are seeing about 3,000 people a day get vaccinated. That's up from about 2,500 in uh, you know a couple weeks ago. 63% of Kentuckians are vaccinated now, which is now we have, are now slightly above where we thought we were back in October when we made that big correction to our data uh, and removed all of those duplicate people who got vaccinated in multiple counties. Cases are growing at a huge rate right now, but it, it does appear, though, that the rate of increase is decreasing. We are probably, uh, you know, we probably will see cases increase or at least remain, you know, stable for, for a couple more weeks. But, but cases will start coming down soon enough, uh, and, and there are some significant indicators in other larger cities than Louisville and Lexington where the outbreak came first that their case numbers are turning around already. So that, that's where we're at with it. It's probably going to go down soon, but we are definitely still in the, the teeth of a massive increase and with the most number of people having COVID um, at any other point in the pandemic right now. There are a lot of people getting COVID right now. And there are a lot of people going to the hospital with COVID right now too. So be careful. Um, you know, we're multiple years into this pandemic. And I think mostly one of the things we're, we're gonna have to do is sometimes it's going to be dangerous out there and we have to act cautiously. Doesn't mean we have to act like this all the time. The pandemic's not going to be over in two months, but it's going to be safer to do stuff like go out to eat and see friends and small groups, or even go to, you know, a basketball game with mask on or whatever. 
Um, all of those are going to be safer in a couple months than they are right now. I would just exercise extreme caution right now in, in just about everything you do. Um, yeah, we uh, personally, we had a bit of a uh, an exposure over the weekend. And, and I think that those are just a fact of life now. You know, we did basically everything we could to try to avoid it. You know, the, the person who was positive that we were around had had a, a test, a negative test result the day before um, and then showed up as positive the day after. Um, he, he came over to our house. You know, we, we avoided going out. Uh, we wanted to just do something small um, inside of our own home and invited just a few people over and, yeah, uh, got caught in an exposure situation. But, you know, when you have a small child, uh, your, your punishment is that you then have to take, <laughs> take care of the child and work at the same time. So, uh, Jasmine, this week uh, we have burned through 29 episodes of Sesame Street. So if you need to know anything about about Grover, Elmo, you know, Prairie Dawn, <laughs> Rudy, all these, all, all the Muppets, all the new ones and the old ones, I can tell you everything you need to know. So that's, that's what's been going on with me and COVID. Uh, it, it, yeah, I don't know. Are you, are you still mostly locked down like you were last week? Yeah, I am. The problem is that the exposure in the courthouse uh, yeah. where I work <laughs> yeah. is, is pretty bad. And, and so it's pretty hard to, avoid i'm pretty lucky that i don't have to go to the courthouse very often but all of my coworkers do and i'm exposed to them um so it's still not great for me yeah um, but i'm just i'm just trying to stay in my office as much as i can yeah wear the good masks and <laughs> stay home <laughs> yeah yeah it's pretty crazy out there right now you know and, and it is kind of the case that you know case rates the number of people with covid is maybe not as salient a metric it kind of means something different than it did like a year ago um, but it's still not good uh, and it's not good to get it no matter whether or not it's mild or not so you know be careful um it doesn't seem like uh it, it doesn't seem like going out is a, a good idea right now but but it will probably turn around before you know it in, in just a few weeks so anyways that's that all right jasmine how can people get a hold of us they can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>